Recently, I had a chance to sit down with my old friend, Ann Edminister. I met Ann, oh, probably about 15 years ago when I was first introduced to home performance and green building and really sent me off in a different direction as a builder and remodeling contractor in California. Luckily, at the time, I was in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, up in Marin County, doing work as a contractor and the movement towards green building and net zero and indoor air quality issues and uh, making sure your home worked better, et cetera, uh, was really starting to take off, especially there in the Bay Area. And Anne was very much an advocate of uh, higher performing buildings. She was very, you know, she was a you know, one of the founders and one of the founding members in the structure and how it was built, the whole residential program for the LEED system, uh, as well as a lot of other uh, advocacy groups and organizations throughout her career. She's always been a part of uh, the built environment and improving the built environment. And still to this day, Anne is out there hitting the streets, helping organizations and entities improve their training practices, improving their advocacy, uh, pushing for net zero emissions. It used to be back in the day we were looking for net zero energy uh, to be a target, um, but now she has corrected us and shared with us we should be focused on the emissions of a building, uh, especially homes and even in our own environment and on how we live our lives. Uh, we can reduce carbon quite substantially just by the choices we make. So enjoy this interview with Anne. I'm sure you'll love it. And uh, you'll have some links below to the, the organizations that she talks about. Enjoy. So I, I know you from the, the camp of you know high performance builders, et cetera. Uh, and I briefly got to know you back in the day. But can you refresh my memory on how you got into what you're doing today versus what you were doing. I know that you were a teacher for a while. Is that correct? Is that what you were doing? Well, um, teaching has been part of my, I guess, <laughs> green building career for, you know, quarter century, but right. I've never been a teacher teacher. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so you've always like helped others educating and teaching others. Always yeah. felt like that was your calling. In the industry. Yeah. Right. But right. Yeah, I come from a family of teachers, so I think it was one of those inescapable things. Uh, maybe that's what I remember, those stories of you, you talking about your parents being teachers. Yeah, probably yeah, and, so. And just that, that, that love of sharing knowledge, and I, I get it. I, I love being able to do that whenever I can in any context. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like I, have a, I joke, too, and say, you know, when I was early into the green building work, I did a lot of volunteering, and at some point, I, mm -hmm. I realized that volunteering is a slippery slope <laughs> to teaching, and that in turn to leadership. <laughs> ah, interesting. It's kind of a, a half pipe, if you will, kind of slippery, <laughs> then it kind of pops up the other side. <laughs> yeah, there's That's... definitely some corkscrews in there, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of uh, pins and arrows and scars along the way. <laughs> a little bit of that, yep. <laughs> Right. So you were you more of the kind of the generalist uh, kind of a consultant or were you an architect? And did you kind of use that as part of your your injection into that? Yeah, um, I have both a bachelor's and a master's in architecture with a, a hefty gap in between where I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's always kind of been the launch pad for this. And in my early stage career um, of design work, I did a like a hundred plus residential remodels. In the course of which, I learned a lot about houses. So, because you know you're dealing with existing houses and how they went together and should have gone together and can be modified, and so you see them in a very different way than if you're just designing new or just walking around inside them, right? So that was a really good foundation for. 
was that your was that during that period was that kind of your aha moment of kind of the I mean that's kind of exactly how it hit me. I was a remodeling contractor and I just saw the the you know I'd have clients that would remodel their kitchen every 3 years and it was just such a waste of materials and labor and everything in between it was, and it just got and luckily I was in the Bay Area so I was influenced by very progressive uh, kind of environmentally minded contractors and like, Hey, they're doing things a little bit different. So that was kind of my tribe that I was hanging with. What was your influence? How did that kind of break you out of the, yeah, the normal? Well, it, it, waste was definitely part of it. I mean, I was, I think I came out of the womb abhorring waste. Mm. I just like, <laughs> that's just been a part of my makeup forever. And so definitely seeing the waste in the industry was, very troubling to me and I also kind of grew up as an environmentalist you know it's like I spent time in in wilderness you know in the high Sierra as a teenager and young person I cleaned up birds on the beaches after the first big Santa Barbara oil spill and that had a tremendous influence on me that was a very very disturbing experience. So those so those things kind of converged when the um, sort of precursors to the green building movement started to, you know, make waves, little waves in the late 80s, you know, started to hear about things like sick building syndrome and um, that was like a big aha. And I, somehow or other, I think either the first or the second issue of environmental building news found its way to me, which was really great. And so I was a very, very, very early subscriber and devotee to that. Um, and that's what sent me back to graduate school. It's like, finally, I felt like, oh, right, this is my niche, right, is this, uh. this thing that didn't really have a name yet, green building or environmental building. Do they have any of that in your, in the advanced education that you were attempting to go back into? Did, did they recognize that? Well, there were, yeah, certain profs who did. There was definitely no program, um, but I was lucky enough because, you know, I had a home. I had uh, a husband. I had a business. I wasn't going to go away to grad school. So it was like, well, go to grad school where I can go to grad school, which is UC Berkeley. And I figured people say, oh, do they have a program in that? I'm like, no, but I'll make it work. <laughs> so, but I was really lucky that um, there were profs there who were really into the green side of energy and the green side of materials. And, and those were my two primary focus areas were energy materials and also housing. It's like I've always been interested only pretty much in residential architecture, at, you know, where people live, how they live. I, I don't care about big buildings. Well, I care about them, but not like I want to design or have anything to do with them. That's not my interest at all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I was just really lucky that I was able to kind of pull together a program that was very, very interesting to me and gave me a lot of opportunity for growth. Right. So after that program, you were kind of like uh, the, the shiny emerald jewel on the block because you were like one of the few, right? I mean, it had that in my mind. I mean, we, we lucked up to you folks and like, wow, those are those are the experts in the field. And you were kind of that was just a few years before, you know, we got into mm -hmm. it. So it's this weird. It's still in its infancy, but it's so it's weird how rapidly it, it accelerated, got, you know, high peak on the wave and then the wave kind of crashed on the beach. And then now it's just. We're trying to, you know, keep it afloat and still breathing. And I'm like, yeah, I'll never give up. I, I love being passionate about it. And especially the residential, like you said, it's where we live. It's where we have family and grow up and, and all of that. So, yeah, that is so cool that you got into it in school. So was it hard to attract clients or in that environment? I mean, like you said, the Bay Area, they were kind of already prescribed to having some kind of environmental awareness yeah, although, of what they were doing, their touch on the planet, mm -hmm. et cetera. I, well, it's interesting because um, when I came out of grad school, my career focus just kind of flipped on a dime. It was kind of serendipitous, I guess you would say. I 
met um, a woman named Dana Sharon. Her, her name at the time was Dana Harmon. I don't know if you ever met Dana, but at the time she was running a project for Rainforest Action Network. It was called the Wood Reduction Clearing House. And um, we hit it off immediately, and I started working with Dana on um, a project around wood reduction in the residential building industry. That's a tough sell, as you can imagine. <laughs> right. It's like, right. Mm -hmm, less wood in residential yeah. buildings. Um, but that project eventually moved from wood re uh, from a Rainforest Action Network to Nader's organization in D.C. And at that time, um, NRDC uh, recruited me to join them essentially in the same campaign. And so I worked with NRDC for close to 10 years. The, the project they originally brought me in for was writing a book called, this is the scintillating title of Efficient Wood Use in Residential Construction, A Practical Guide to Saving Wood, Money, and Forests. <laughs> oh, so, my goodness. Uh, but that was, a, it was an <laughs> awesome project. I loved working on that. Right. And, again, learned a lot, met a lot of great people. And it's, it's funny because that little book, which is, you know, NRDC published. It was not commercially published. But it became kind of a cult classic. And um, so I got um, a lot of opportunities to kind of share the message that that book had and then from that I was recruited to join the US Green Building Council's nascent um, residential team still as mm -hmm. an NRDC staffer but um, the US Green Building Council as you probably know did a lot of the early right. work on LEAD leadership and energy and environmental design program via volunteer involvement and so I was recruited as a member of the LEAD residential committee which I ended up chairing after a couple years um, the initial chair had wow. to go off and do other work at a, at a certain point and then I was tapped <laughs> as a chair co-chair for that so before they had the residential section uh, did they have they were already existing organization and then they decided to go residential or was it reversed? No, they did. They started with the commercial program for LEED. And that's always been its yes, flagship. Um, the residential program has always been kind of the Cinderella within the LEED family, to be blunt about gotcha. it. And um, so we had our, our challenges cut out for us. But it was another really, um, I think, worthwhile and productive experience, despite some of the uphill <laughs> uphill aspects to it <laughs> right so but so I ended right. up you know working just getting jumping right into these programs and pretty much abandoned my design practice but at the same time I ended up also advising design teams so but that was more of kind of a sideline you know my my main gig was really right. these sort of bigger programmatic efforts and the education around them so that's where, in fact, I remember at some point fairly early in that stage, um, ended up talking to somebody about my family and said, yeah, everybody in my family except me teaches. And then I went, oh, wait a minute. That used to be true, but it's not true anymore <laughs> because I, I had found myself pretty rapidly getting involved in the teaching side right. of it, um, particularly after publishing that book. Uh, with NRDC mm -hmm. because like that was right. the next phase. Right. It's like, wow, well, now we've done this research. We need to teach people about what we learned through doing that research. So how you can say Was that the precursor to, right, was that book the precursor to smart or, you know, like advanced framing techniques or was it kind of a parallel? It, it actually, it just so we, happened. There's a chapter in it on advanced framing or optimum value engineering. There was sort of a debate about which term was better at the time. Advanced framing mm. is the one that seems right. to have stuck more. But um, no, in fact, the right. National Association of Home Builders had done the early, the seminal research oh, on that, and we sort of recapped it and updated it, you know, condensed and highlighted and so forth. I yeah, see. So, gotcha. but they were, 
really in the forefront. But you know, the irony is, so that was that book was published in 1998, and I think. The work NAHB had done on it predated that by at least a decade, if not two or three. But it's one of those things that just has not taken hold. Um, in recent years, it's been it's got a little bit more traction as materials have gotten heinously expensive, um, and there are still devotees out there, but. It's just so much easier to just keep throwing more sticks at something. Right, so. right. And that's always, I mean, you and I have seen these audiences and had these clients and some have high expectations. Some are just doing it to do it. Some are, you know, greenwashing and everything in between. And and I currently, where I'm at, I work with a lot of production builders and they they won't spend one penny over what it costs you know, anything extra, you know, they're going for the programs to some extent. Um, a lot of them are doing the hers and getting the scores and doing energy star and very few green programs, but even the energy star folks, they, there's a requirement. I forget what, which, uh, basket we're in, but there's a smart framing component. And I keep telling the guys, you know, the instructors are telling the Raiders, Hey, here, check for smart framing like this. And I said, well, that's just one component of smart framing. And they didn't understand that. They thought that was oh you know, that one little piece was the smart framing. So it was like, you know, way uh -huh. over their head. So even the, the experts don't really know sometimes what it all entails and every little piece is just part right. of the puzzle, but the puzzle has to be built well and they don't, yeah. they don't yeah. get it. No, very true. So, yeah. And you don't really achieve the savings so, with it, either the material savings or the thermal improvements unless you go about it in a more methodical and holistic way. Right. Right. I remember my old mentor, Mark Richmond used to say, how, how much does your house weigh? <laughs> and he posed this to the builders and the builders that all look at each other. Like, I don't know how, have you ever weighed your house? Like, but his point was, you know, how much weight, how many sticks are you putting in it that right. you don't really need? Yeah. But it made him pause and think about it for a minute. It's like, well, that makes sense. But yeah, it's a tough sell, like you said. And I've talked to the architects and the Graham and Terry and everybody. And, you know, Graham is a big favorite, a uh, fan of modularized walls and prefab construction to, to, and I, I get it from the production standpoint, but can you achieve that modular built wall, but in a smart advanced framing or goal to net zero way? And, and separate site from from production. That's always been the tricky part of getting builders to say it's it's cheaper, faster, better somehow. Yeah, there's it. well, in fact, another chapter in that NRDC book was on panelization or modularization. So, and um, that's another one that's been really, really slow to take hold. I think I think that is going to shift. I think it is shifting, though. Finally. You know, it just takes decades for some of these things to move um, and to have examples from other parts of the world where, you know, in China that's entirely common. And there are good reasons for that because there are savings to be had through the process. And you, know, you can protect the structure by having so much of it done under roof instead of exposed to weather and, you know, um, a lot less waste and so forth. So there are very good reasons for that. And certainly a lot of people who have um, been part of the bleeding edge in that arena <laughs> who can speak to the challenge of, of trying to <laughs> shove that boulder up the hill. Um, but I, I think it'll get there of necessity. But, you know, we're, as Americans, I think uh, as a culture, we're iconoclasts and nobody wants their house to be exact like exactly like somebody else's and we're very very loath to give up on the single family detached house in a moat of grass model um, and understand you know I, I was talking to one of our city council members the other day and he said you know we have to understand that the future is not single family I, I absolutely agree we don't have the luxury on this planet of thinking that we can mm -hmm. keep building that way we can't afford you know, we, to spread yeah. ourselves over the land. 
that way because the land right. is needed for other things like all the ecosystem services right. that it provides and we need to be closer together yeah. so we're not you know spending all our time in traffic and spewing emissions and all that stuff it's so cool that you got invited into those programs you had some influence and you definitely spearheaded the lead for home stuff i know and 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 i got in it early just as a raider just that's when i first heard about the lead part i was always doing already doing hers but I was more interested in saving stuff and, and validating performance and paying attention to materials and quality and quantity and all that stuff. So the lead stuff was very appealing. You're my expert on net zero, whether it's, you know, and we could talk for hours about <laughs> right. what definition you want to use. And and I'll let you pick one and we can ride with it. I don't, you know, I, I just think about if I'm going to build a house for somebody and they want to be net zero, you know, they want to produce as much as they use in a year. That seems doable, but it, it, are there caveats to that? Are there are side issues to that? Because one complaint I hear all the time is, yeah, you're net zero through the year, but you're still affecting the grid in the middle of summer mm -hmm. like everybody else. You know, you're not really saving energy that day, you know, what, what have you. But so how do you combat those kind of complaints or... Well, you know, this back. does go to sort of definitions, and I think that, um, you know, initially that the concept is very appealing, that if I produce as much energy as I use on an annual basis, that feels somehow equitable, like I've done my share. And that, I, that principle, I think, is still a very sound principle. But, you know, as the state policy has been developing, and initially the state sort of set its sights on, on that very goal. But as the state was moving in that direction and laying the track in front of the train, in effect, to, towards that destination, the realization came about that, oh, right, but just because something balances out over the course of a year doesn't mean you've actually addressed all the issues with energy use along the way. And specifically that there we have emissions associated with operating the power plants that provide the energy we're using, say, when the sun isn't shining or when the wind turbines aren't cranking, right? And so when that light bulb went off for the state, finally, you know, belatedly they started to you know redirect the, the, the Queen Mary and say you know all along we've been using energy as a proxy for emissions right and that worked to a point and then it became clear that it wasn't enough that we actually had to address emissions head-on so that was a the necessary shift, I think, for all of us to make. And so. So from yeah. energy to carbon. Exactly. And so, gotcha. you know, uh, that's where I am right now. It's like, great. That's where we should have been all along. I'm so happy that, again, policy direction is, is focused that way now as I am. So. But I still do like the goal of it's a both and, right? Like, so we should be attempting to use no more energy than can be provided, sort of by us, near us, on our own structure. And we should also be striving to have zero emissions. And so, what that means is we've got to eliminate fossil fuels. And to me, that's the big zero that we should be striving for right now. Because while the larger forces of our state and our society are gradually, again, making that shift in our electrical grid to make it cleaner and cleaner, we still have to clean it up at the individual site level. So, and the way we do that with new construction is to say, we're just not going to build with fossil fuel infrastructure in our buildings anymore. I mean, there are a few notable exceptions of just, just certain types of, say, industrial uses that don't have a 
viable electric alternative right now. But for residential construction, you know, where you and I both operate, it's absolutely feasible and, in fact, highly desirable to go all electric. So solving it with new construction, at least in a, you know, matter of, as a matter of principle, is easy peasy. Um, on the other hand, we have, you know, millions of existing structures that are using fossil fuels that need to get transitioned off of those fossil fuels. That is the big nut to crack. And, you know, ideally, at the same time we're doing that, we'll be reducing the demand of those structures overall and providing them with clean energy. All that at the same time. So that's that's what, you know, I wave my magic right, wand. Right. That's what it's going to look like. Um, but <laughs> that's got to be one ass kick yeah. magic wand. <laughs> Yeah, it is. At, at least, at least California is like leading the charge. I mean, I'm I'm glad I grew up there because I'm proud of my uh, my home state. But the other states I've been in, they're like, stay away. We're using our coal. We're using our gas. You know, even the local officials are like, it ain't going to change anytime soon, son. Get out of you know whatever is like. Wow, like so this. I I guess it's. I guess it's where you grew up, or what what affected your life growing I don't know I I'm still trying to figure it out because you meet some guys from some states and they're they're all for it and other ones are like old school it's like no we got entrenchment here we can't we can't affect the livelihood of xyz it's like how do you argue against that it's it's difficult I think it's there's a kind of amusing parallel to the natural gas items in our homes we can think of them as not only being run by fossil fuels, but in a sense, on their own way to being fossils, right? And I think some of those who uh, embody the old way of thinking are also arguably fossilized. <laughs> Foss uh, yeah, it's kind of the running theme of the whole. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I know. It's like I, I remember I did one presentation one time where I had a picture of a dinosaur. It's like, you don't want to be one of these. <laughs> so there's, I, I love the Right. Yeah, you don't want to hang out in that, that tar pit. <laughs> they thought it was a pool and they jumped into the tar pit. Yeah, yeah. so there's, there's a bunch of entertaining <laughs> parallels there. But, I, you know, I really do think, you know, quite realistically that the old ideas have to die off. And, you know, Kevin, you and I are very right. youthful, but <laughs> there yeah. are those who are less youthful who just won't be around influencing things that much right. longer. I agree. I mean, definitely appreciate and admire the youth that's coming up and making their voices heard. And and we'll keep shouting. And you have to keep correcting me because if, if, it's, if it's zero carbon is the goal, and I'm, I definitely push for all electric anyway, but. You know, I would hate to build someone a, a all electric mansion, and they, you know, were filled with five Teslas, and you know, it's like they've kind of defeated, you know, my personal philosophy, but it could be theirs. But I guess, you know, but it sounds like carbon is the way we got to do it, though. It's it's the it's the only way to kind of combat future issues and problems. You know, it, if we don't solve the climate change problem, we won't have time to solve the other problems. So, yeah, I mean, but the consumption is a huge issue, you know, so the too much of everything is part of the challenge as well. And there are too many people with, you know, multiple residences that aren't being occupied. Meanwhile, we have people on the streets. It's like, hmm, there's something wrong with this equation here. And as you say, the, 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 the mega homes, the McMansions and that. On the other hand, um, I've had some incredible clients who are extremely fortunate and are able to build really exemplary projects which serve as inspirations for others. So that serves a, a purpose right. in our grand picture as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you painted it that way because some people would say, oh, they just threw a bunch of money at it to make it do this or that. And it's like, well, sometimes you got to make the Absolutely. point that it's accomplishable. It's, it's doable. Maybe you can figure out a way to do it cheaper, better, faster, 
that that's your mission, but we just wanted to get it out there and show that it could be done because I've seen people spend a ton of money on whatever insulation or windows or high tech, you know, water heating system, whatever. And just like, wow, you spent a hundred grand more than you probably needed to, but I'm glad you're cool with your reward at the end of the tunnel. But they, they, they serve as educational signposts for sure. Right. And you know, there's, we're kind of a celebrity mad culture and we look up to those who are wealthy and prominent. And so we need the examples in those quarters as well. And so people who create things that are um, functional and beautiful and high performance and all electric. Great. Those are, those are, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Check all those boxes. (laughs) We won't all be able to afford the, yeah. The, the crazy high end of things, but if we take away the message that something can be high performance and beautiful and it's the right thing to do and that's what, you know, the people we look up to are doing, that is an excellent message for our society. Yeah, I remember going to the, what were they called, the, the solar decathlons where the kids would all from different schools would, you know, little mini, so, and they were so cool to just, watch and look at the creativity and sure the cost it would be enormous or whatever but just to think of it that way outside of the box you know we're so used to our rigorous how we were taught or whatever and so refreshing to see new vision i i see that you're still doing work with counties and cities and different programs what what do you like to do these days is it is that your kind of your flavor of what you are you like to kind of Uh spread it around or what (laughs) What keeps you busy? What keeps you interested um, these days? It is more and more on the education side of things. Um, So, you know, as we've already talked Mm. about, I've done a fair amount myself of being involved in educating others in in the industry around better building practices. And now I'm also helping other organizations figure out how to improve their educational offerings. So not necessarily teaching myself. Sometimes I'm still doing some of that, but also just thinking about what are we teaching? Who are we teaching it to? How do we reach a wider audience? How do we create the educational programs in such a way that they are accessible and appealing to a wider audience? Because one of our biggest challenges, I think, in the you know several decades you and I have been involved in this game is that our audience has not expanded enough. You know, we really haven't reached as many people as we should have reached in the years that we've been doing this. And it's because the institutions haven't been asking those questions of like, how do we get to more people? You know, they've been saying, well, we have this bucket of money and we can spend it on education. Okay, we'll do that. Instead of how do we leverage that and get it diffused as far as possible? That's the real question. So that so you think that was the the missing component of of why the the, the movement kind of st- not stagnated but kind of froze for a while it seemed to me is like mm-hmm. it didn't move along we had our our tribe yeah. but like you said it didn't grow so you're tying it back to the the yeah educational I think there's, system there's or? never been enough um, time money effort or credibility invested in the importance of education. You know, I think you can still get a degree in engineering and architecture without any knowledge of the principles of resource-efficient building, right? I mean, that's that's lamentable. And so there have been these little pots of money created through, you know, going back to California and our Title 24 and the creation of a pot of money, public goods funds that were dedicated to education which is great but it's a drop in the bucket you know again it should be happening much earlier it should be happening in grade school middle school high school you know every university program and yet it isn't and so this is the question i remember oh probably around 2010 um one of the utilities that i did some work with established a 
um, a zero net energy advisory council or something. And I remember at the first meeting they said, well, we have X you know, million dollars to spend to advance this idea of zero net energy and you know, so much money is going into technical assistance and so much money into you know, whatever competition and demonstration programs and, and this tiny sliver was dedicated to education and I was like, uh, it, it should all go into education. And it was like, yeah, whatever, you know, but yeah, well, you know, to be fair, in a sense, demonstration projects and things are a form of education or lead to have educational co-benefits, but um, yeah, it's, it, you know, we have to be doing a better job. Has their taste changed or is there a way to to mm-hmm. to spark that interest in them today then it w- might have been different for us we were i mean i'm my parents mm-hmm. weren't hippie but they were from that generation of just coming out of it and just you know a little so i don't know I'm, i i i ask myself the same question how do we spark interest in this movement and, and is it the chicken and the egg syndrome does the education need to be there for them to be attracted to it or does the attraction need to spur the educational institution to well, it's probably both and. But I, I mean, I think I, I do have. I have a 22 year old who lives under my roof, and so I have that um, contact with young, younger people, um, and also I work with some younger folks directly. My sense is that young people, unless they are completely oblivious are very concerned about what the planet they're living on is going to be like for them in the future. So I think that anxiety is making them very interested in solutions. Um, It's a bittersweet thing, but it's a both and. You know, I mean, it's it's always a both and. Like, it's, it's incumbent on our generations to be resources to the younger generations, you know, help figure out how we can create a better future for them and support them in their efforts because they're doing a great job of, in many cases, educating their elders and um, and calling us on the carpet for what we haven't accomplished. So, but I'm, I'm very hopeful. Yeah, I am too. And I have a... a- He's 35, 36, an older son, but he's definitely uh, same issue, same anxiety. So he's definitely clued in more than we were. I, I remember as a, a young teenager seeing the the green ecology, whatever symbol was on my sister's backpack and didn't, under, didn't understand with the whole and until later, but it, that was my first impact. And now it's like this burden that they're carrying. And I feel sad about that, but I want to, I too want to be there for them and help them in any way I can. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're both still kicking it and just kicking that can down the road and just kind of keep plugging that message because it's the reality of our future. And if we, you know, the quicker we absorb it, the better we can get there and take care of business. Um, and and I was just going to, yeah, I was just going to say too, I I wish more of the youth would, uh, demand energy efficient homes when they're out there purchasing because right now they're just getting whatever the lowest price is or whatever. And I think you can accomplish, you know, zero carbon emissions even in every community if they wanted to. They're just not hearing that demand. And that's, they very much are tuned into that demand of their buyer. So I encourage those, you know, that are in that market to make that voice heard. Yes and no. I mean, I think the challenge is that it, when by the time you go shopping for a house, all the decisions about the houses that are available to you were made many years prior. You know, so there's a a big disconnect between the demand and the supply sides of the equation. And so the supply side tends to be very driven by um, inertia, you know, the inertia of the industry of like, well, this is what we've been doing, so this is what we keep doing because this is what's easiest to keep doing. This is what we know how to do, and change is difficult, right? Um, So 
And then the other piece of it, again, the educational piece is you don't know to ask for something that you don't know exists. If you've never seen an example of something like this, you don't even know it has a name and you don't know how to ask for it. And of course, what people care most about in a home is where it is, right? Location, location, location. So it's, it's really incumbent upon us who are in the industry and our institutions to force that change. And I think there's some very good work that's being done on demand. Um, right now, there's a campaign called The Switches On that was developed by the Building Decarbonization Coalition. That's a public-facing campaign to get people to ask for electric homes and to ask to get their existing homes electrified. So this is a step in the right direction. But consumer-oriented messaging is a very expensive undertaking. You know, that's why Madison Avenue exists and why there's a huge amount of money that goes into those types of campaigns. You know, we're not Pepsi, we're not Monsanto, you know, we're not, you know, Johnson and Johnson, Procter right. and Gamble and so forth. And so that is the challenge. But you know, my belief is that our what's incumbent upon each of us as individuals is not only to act with within what's our, our control occupationally, but as members of the civic body. You know, this is where it matters. You know, we've got to be advocating for action from local government. Local government policy is making a big change here in California now, and as well as in other parts of the country, both the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest are also seeing lots of changes with local policies that are having major impacts and with our state and federal governments. We need to make our voices heard in, you know, at every possible opportunity because we need, we need mandates, not just voluntary programs, not just consumer demand. Right. Talking points, right? Totally agree. Well said. Uh, what's your stance on nuclear energy? I do not claim to be hugely well-educated on the issue, but I am absolutely gut-opposed to it. Uh, and this is, you know, just based on concerns about management of the waste and the, and the process um, associated with it. I mean, I understand that there's a big difference between fission and fusion, but... Um, I, I can't really venture too far down that road. <laughs> right. I too am. And, and I can't either. I was just curious because I live in a part of the country now that is, is, you know, luckily they've shied away from coal and all that. And gas is, to, you know, to some extent being, mm -hmm. it just depends on what part of the state you're standing in, but their main source right now is nuclear. And it's like, well, let's, it kind of fits both criteria. It's a scary thing, but it's, you know, low emitting and it's like, this is weird, but I agree. I'm on a personal level. I'm, I'm not a fan, yeah. but I was just curious what your take on it was. So thank you for that. So, and just as a wrap up, I just want to, you know, where you, you, and you sent the message and I totally get it. You know, we've got to be advocates for all of this smart thinking, smart planning, smart educating of our community as of our society. What, on, on a personal note, if I just walked in your office and said, you know, what are some things I can do to 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 reduce my carbon footprint? And, and maybe you can share some of those quick, you know, what are those few things that, as a homeowner? Well, um, I'd say take a look at all your natural gas appliances, figure out how old they are, when they are likely to age out, and preemptively replace those that are you know, well along in their lifespan. Because having them fail on you, first of all, is a very unpleasant experience. And secondly, um, to replace them with electric appliances right now, um, when you're in crisis mode, can be pretty challenging. Because there are supply issues. Of course, you know, there are, there's supply issues with all kinds of things in the world today. Right, so especially now of all times, 
and there are also challenges in some cases. Let's say you're replacing a, a gas furnace with an electric heat pump. There may be also challenges having the right um, skilled labor available to make that replacement for you. Conceivably, if you say, well, I'm looking ahead and I, I actually want to replace all of my natural gas uses with electric downstream, that might entail an electric panel upgrade. So it's really important to kind of lay out the pathway for yourself and figure out what's the logical sequence to tackle these things in. I'm glad you brought that up because it's not as simple right. as changing a pair of shoes. It's like there's the cost of the other pair of shoes plus <laughs> all these other shoelaces you have to buy to make those other right. pair of shoes fit better, right? I mean, we got to put in wiring and panels and exactly. reroute stuff. And you might and, need to have yeah, your orthotics so. refitted. Okay. <laughs> Okay, great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. Ouch. Right. Okay, so so gas using appliances, evaluate those for longevity and 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 the costs involved of that swap out. Okay, what else? Right. Exactly. And just, you know, get your ducks in a row. Figure out, you know, who's going to do the work for you, you know, what it's going to cost, you know, what equipment you want or that they recommend and and what sequence it makes sense to do things in. And of course the other one is same principle applies on the transportation side of our lifestyles, right? Like let's try and get out of our gas-fueled vehicles. I'm personally kind of gearing up to face that issue myself. Fortunately, I haven't had to drive very much the last couple of years. Uh, so yeah, yeah, been kind of stalling that decision. But that's the other big one, you know, depending on where you live and what your lifestyle is and what you're driving, um, your house or your transportation may rep rec uh, represent, you know, the biggest part of your emissions footprint. Right. And I guess that's kind of maybe a step one is evaluating your footprint. You know, how far do I have to drive to work? How, how bad is my house? How, you know, how far do I have to drive this kids to school? And there's all this weighing of if I'm truly looking at my footprint, uh, it's not just housing, it's all these other things. Right, exactly. And just, you know, get your ducks in a row. Figure out, you know, who's going to do the work for you, you know, what it's going to cost, you know, what equipment you want or that they recommend and, and what sequence it makes sense to do things in. And, of course, the other one is same principle applies on the transportation side of our lifestyles, right? Like, let's try and get out of our gas-fueled vehicles. I'm personally kind of gearing up to face that issue myself. Fortunately, I haven't had to drive very much the last couple of years. Uh, so yeah, yeah, been kind of stalling that decision. But that's the other big one, you know, depending on where you live and what your lifestyle is and what you're driving, um, your house or your transportation may rep rec represent, you know, the biggest part of your emissions footprint. Right. Right. And I guess that's kind of maybe a step one is evaluating your footprint. You know, how far do I have to drive to work? How how bad is my house? How, you know, right. how far do I have to drive this kids to school? And there's all this weighing of right. if yeah. I'm can truly I, looking at I, my footprint. Yeah, uh, can I it's group not my just trips. housing, it's all these so other instead things. Instead of making right. all separate trips, I can, you know, do five errands in one loop and use half as much fuel to do it. Okay, so there's housing, there's the appliances of the house, there's how we drive and how we get around. What else can we do as individuals? Well, there's a lot, but you know, those two together for most people are probably going to represent a good solid, you know, 80 even 90% of their everyday impact. Right. Travel, you know, vacations. Right. You know, leisure is probably another big bucket. And yeah. of course it overlaps, right. you know, the other two to some extent, but um, that's another one to look at flying. The the positive side of COVID might be all the millions of miles not spent. And I know that's a bad thing to say, but um, I agree with you. I, travel. I mean, do you think, I mean, it might be futuristic, but do you think we'll be able to travel just virtually and not have to go anywhere and just, just put, put on the goggles, yeah, the Hawaii goggles on and be good to go. 
But I do think, you know, there are larger forces afoot that, you know, there's um, one of the listservs I participate on occasionally the, the subject of air travel comes up and there are people who say, well, I've forsworn air travel. I'm, you know, I'm only going to go if I have to go to a funeral or I'll take the train cross country. And, and there are others who say that's admirable, but these are problems that have to be solved at a cultural scale. And there are, you know, I do actually see articles now and then about electric aviation, which I find really exciting. And um, so there's hope for that stuff too. But meanwhile, again, these are choices. And I think that the pandemic has given us a taste of what it means to reduce our impacts in certain ways and to find out, okay, sure, it's in some ways it's hard. But on the other hand, I think about like what my lifestyle has been like like as opposed to say what my parents was which was much more modest and their parents we have been ridiculously privileged as a generation certainly not uniformly obviously there's a lot of um, inequity in the distribution of wealth and opportunity but um, our generation that grew up in the the, the era of post-world war ii prosperity the with the um, erroneous belief that things will always keep getting better yeah meaning we will have more and more goodies and more and more privilege and more and more opportunity that was a fool's you know delusion right so when I look at that and think oh poor me I haven't you know gotten to go anywhere exotic for two years wow 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 get out my little violin right yeah you know yeah boohoo right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, I, I hear you. I definitely, um, I couldn't agree with you more. It's like there's a little slap on the back of the head. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, stop that, uh, which is a reality check. So, and you're right. It's kind of proven to ourselves that it's survivable. Yeah. We don't need to have these extraneous things that we can survive yeah. and still, I mean, I miss hanging out with people right. at work and societal and events and that, all that stuff. That's the key takeaway for me. It's like, what do I miss the most? It's, being around people, you know, the, the people that I'm fond of. And so, and uh, of course, some of that is related to travel, you know, who I get to see by virtue of where I get to go. But even locally, you know, I think just realizing that it's the enrichment of being around people that is the most important piece. And I think this is where, when we look to a future lifestyle that is at an impact level that's consistent with uh, a livable planet, we need to focus on how do we make our lives very rich in our local places with the people around us. Well, I'm glad you're around me because you've definitely been an influence and awe-inspiring for me. And I'm, I'm, I want to thank you for all that you do. And thank you so much for your time, Anne. I really appreciate it. And keep up the good work. Thank you, Kevin. That's really sweet. And right back at you. <laughs>